Hi, this is Dave Marshallani and this is my poem, Dopey Podcast. Debaucherous tales from twisted minds, outpourings of grief, relief and hope. Past pleasures and pains are recounted, earnestly, honestly, brutally, yet often with humour. Privileged ponderings and bolshy postulations on drugs, recovery and dumb shit. Do you want to be so good, so bad? Comedic conversations offer comfort and refuge from the sufferings. Scar tunes, vape sounds, aquarium bubbles. Toodles for Chris. Okay, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, in Malibu. Aloe does right by addicts. Their whole plan was to treat with compassion rather than control. It was invented by our friend Bob Forrest and his friend Evan Haynes and their friend Bob. They set up a program designed to give addicts uh, competent, respectful treatment. Bob had been to treatments where he wasn't treated respectfully and he was like, fuck that. I want to make my own treatment where addicts are treated right. And um, I like the sound of that. Uh, Aloe offers a very comfortable detox, which is very important when you're kicking opiates and other incredibly addictive drugs like benzos and alcohol. A comfortable detox is amazing. They have amenities including sound bath meditations, fucking sweat lodges, surfing, and a myriad of other very luxurious amenities. They have incredible care, they deal with dual diagnosis, and they treat addicts with respect. If you're fucked and you're ready to go to treatment and you're willing to go to Southern California, why not go to Aloe Recovery? This episode is also brought to you by our friends at JustCoffee.coop. I love the Just Coffee coffee. It is so robust and delicious. I'm almost done with my bike fuel and I'm ready to get down with the other Super Maya bag that I have. This coffee is actually really good. I recommend getting it. If you like coffee, Just Coffee coffee, not only comes in incredibly fancy packages, but the coffee is incredibly delicious. It smells the way you want coffee to smell. It brews deliciously in the drip or the French press, and probably a nice percolator too. They also practice social justice from the grounds up, which means they, they make sure that the growers in South America get treated fairly and get a good deal. Uh, if you want to get good coffee, go to justcoffee.coop. Ask for that dopey blend. I want to get that dopey blend. Justcoffee.coop. Put in dopey pod for a little discount and support the show and Just Coffee. This episode is also brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation who want to see me not wait tables and they want to see Dopey do well. And uh, that's the Patreon account. So if you go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and you give me money, that's great. Of course, if you don't want to give me money, that's fine, too. Uh, the Patreon is incredibly helpful in making my life easier. If you guys want to order stickers, just Venmo me money, and I'll send you stickers and hats. All right, here's the show. Enough ads. Hello and welcome. 
welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave, and I am in the attic. And uh, first of all, thanks to Dave Mastellani for the poem. It was very good. You've got a voice like Steve Jones. Uh, maybe Dave Mascolani is actually Steve Jones, which would be cool. I love Dave Mascolani. Uh, I hope you're, I'm saying your name okay. He's on a Dopey Nation Facebook group, and he's always putting up uh, amazing musical selections. And that was his Dopey podcast poem. And maybe you want to go back and listen to it, where each phrase uh, references a letter in the spelling of Dopey Podcast. So thank you, David, and thank you for your uh, contributions. And can you identify the surf artist I put under the ads? That's, you know, write me an email and let me know if you can identify that amazing instrumental surf artist at the top. And maybe he's not just technically a surf artist. He does other stuff. Anyway, it's an exciting show today. We have on uh, former professional basketball player and crazy drug addict Chris Heron. I actually heard him on uh, Joey Diaz's podcast. And uh, Joey Diaz, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but he pronounced his name Chris Heron the whole time, uh, which I meant to mention to Chris, but I never got around to it. But Chris's story is so fucking crazy and dopey. You guys are in for a treat. I also noticed... Uh, People posting about Chris on the Dopey Nation. A bunch of people wanted him on. So it's fortuitous timing that it's coming on uh, today. Now, uh, just a weird little thing that happened to me today that I want to share with you guys, which is, um, you know, for my job, I do this catering job. And I go to these very fancy places. And today I went to um, kind of the headquarters of HBO at uh, Warner Group in Hudson Yards, Manhattan, which is this very, very fancy building on the west side. And you go into this lobby, and it's just like opulence and money and crazy. And I I go to these places all the time to scout cafeterias for our catering job. But the thing about this place is it's got um, the Game of Thrones costumes in the lobby. They've got mannequins in Game of Thrones costumes. And I'm like trying to make small talk with the security guard and the security guard is just not interested in me making small talk. And I'm just like, Hey, is that game of Thrones stuff? And he's like, he ignores me. And I said, is that game of Thrones stuff? And he, he's like, uh, yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah, they really ended that show badly. And he just took my ID, ignored me, but it just made me think like, I am like undercover everywhere I go. Like nobody knows the, the dual identity of dopey. And that as a mild-mannered caterer, they just don't know about the Dopey Nation and, and all the good things that we try to do. Waiter and caterer by day, podcaster by night. It's, a, it's an amazing secret identity recovery superhero story. Um, before we get on with Chris Heron, I just want to say I want to apologize to the Dopey Nation. Um, you know, things are just moving, moving fast in my life, you know. I've got tons of work, tons of family, tons of dopey, just constantly going, and I have been sleeping on shipping. And uh, I've just been slow to ship, and I've been irresponsible, and I'm sorry. But I have a gift that I'm going to make it up to you in shipping, which is we are getting dopey buttons. So if you ordered stickers, I'm going to throw you a dopey button too. So that's exciting. And if you guys want dopey stickers and buttons and shit, just Venmo me money to Dopey Podcast. Everybody who will 
pay for it will get a sticker. And I apologize for slow uh, whatever. I also apologize for lackluster sound quality. All of a sudden, the dopey audience is incredibly uh, attentive to what it sounds like. I, me and Chris never had good sound. I don't think we ever had good sound. But now, I mean, I'm, I'm sweating in the attic. The air conditioner is off to make sure there's no sound. Of course, there's a train rolling by in the distance. And um, I have to warn you, though, that uh, Chris Heron, there's... I hate being a sound snob. It's so weird, but there's some hiss in his interview, so just bear with that. Having said that, uh, I loved interviewing this guy. His story is insane. He went from uh, just super talent to super down and out, and now he's out there helping people with the Chris Heron Foundation. Uh, He's has an amazing movie uh, on ESPN 30 for 30 called Unguarded. Totally check it out. His name is Chris Heron, and uh, he came on the show. So take a listen. So this is very exciting. Uh, today on the show, we have this guy, and um, I'm a basketball fan, but unfortunately, I'm a crazy Knicks fan, because I grew up right near Madison Square Garden, but this guy is from Fall River, Massachusetts, right? Correct. And you have to say Fall River. You can't say Fall yeah. River. No R's. No. Um, and his name is Chris Heron, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, one of our fans, a ridiculous fan named Tina, saw your documentary, Unguarded, and she was like, you got to get this guy on the show. He would be amazing for the show. And I didn't really think anything of it. Um, But then I started hearing more about you and more about you and more about you. And I was like, all right, we should get him on. So I got into, and you have this big foundation. And I was like, all right, this guy's going to be kind of a boring recovery speaker type if we have him on. And I kind of put it on the back burner in my mind. But then I watched the movie. And oh, my God. Like, what? I mean, I'm sure everybody watches that movie. And the first thing they say is, holy shit, right? You know, I mean, that was, that was somewhat the intent. Um, you know, I think, you know, now heroin is such a, there's a buzzword around it. You know, fentanyl, car fentanyl, heroin, overdose, right? It's like, you know, but when I when I decided to write the book and, and do the documentary and the first time I overdosed in 2004, you know, not many people were talking about it. And, you know, to show you how far we've come over the years, I mean, the headline on the front page of the Boston Herald when I overdosed was what a shame. Um, meaning, you know, meaning because you had so much potential, but let's back up for a second. Because I don't think you know anything about our show. Our show is this, uh, basically, it was a show that I started with a friend of mine named Chris, who was from Back Bay, Boston, and, uh, and he recently overdosed and died. Uh, we met in rehab. I, I'm a heroin addict uh, in recovery, and, um, and we started this to tell the dumbest drug stories we ever had done. Um, and it became this sort of recovery show. And uh, that's why I think your story is so, it fits in so crazy because the heights and lows of your career are just out of hand. Um, And Chris died, my friend Chris died because of the fentanyl, you know, which is what you're talking about. And and I don't think fentanyl was around when I was doing dope. Do you think it was around the last time you were fucking around with heroin? No, no, definitely not. Um, You know, I think my overdoses were a combination of vodka and and heroin. you know, that, that seems to put me, that always put me at a much higher risk. That's when I always found myself, 
in a position of, of, of overdosing or, you know, nodding out to the fat, to the point where I'm falling on the floor. It's, you know, it's just the alcohol, the deadly combination of vodka and heroin, uh, didn't mix fentanyl. I don't, I don't think I'd be alive today if, if, uh, if fentanyl was around when I was shooting heroin. Yeah. I mean, when, when I hear your story, cause he, I mean, Chris, I'm going to just abridge it a little bit, you know, he, he started out as this uh, incredible high school star at, at a Fall River, Massachusetts. I, I used to do a good fake Boston accent, but since Chris died, my Boston accent sucks. Um, fucking, and he went on to play at Boston College. And, uh, and um, what was your partying like before Boston College? Because it was an addiction. Did, would you think you were an alcoholic before you went to BC or no? I was probably, you know, if I, in hindsight, looking back, I was probably early stages. You know, I mean, I always drank to excess. I always drank to um, a point where, you know, I was struggling at the end of the night. So, you know, I was probably early stages. You chalk it up to a kid being a kid. You chalk it up to a kid in a basement on a Friday night with his friends getting loaded. Um, but in hindsight, looking at the pattern, yeah, I was probably early stages alcoholic. Right. BC, you know, BC, I went to BC, I was introduced to cocaine. Cocaine was my truth serum. You know, it allowed me to speak freely and, and, and emotionally and have these long in-depth conversations with people that, um, that I probably needed to have, but didn't have the tools to have it in a, in a normal setting. Okay. Um, Explain um, that. Like, like, so you, you were like guarded with what you could say and then you did coke and all of a sudden you could talk to people. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would tell my life story. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, that was, that was attractive to me. That was attractive. You know, that, that was one of the things that allowed, uh, that, that lowered the defenses for me with cocaine. You know, I would be up all night talking, smoking butts, drinking beers and, um, and just sharing, you know, and, and things that I probably, um, needed to share, sober um but i just didn't have the ability to do it um so you know cocaine was my first real uh look at at addiction um and that got me kicked out of bc within four months so but i remember the first game you played you broke your wrist do you think did, did that have anything to do with with using or was it just bad luck no 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 that was just bad luck that was just you know, it was just, it was a fall that I had to brace my fall and crack my wrist. That just put me on the fast track. You know, I mean, I'm a freshman in college, supposed to be living on freshman campus. I'm living in senior dorms, you know, playing wiffle ball and getting drunk every day. You know, I mean, so I, I was, I was, whether or not I broke the wrist or not, the, the wrist was a bad, a bad break. It was bad luck, but I wasn't, you know, a division one athlete acting like one leading up to my first game in college basketball. I was playing more wiffle ball than I was basketball. Yeah. Tell me a little, I, I love, I love, I mean, I know that like your friends and the small town thing was part of the problem and it was part of the bedrock of who you are, but it's also like who you are now. So why don't you talk a little bit about like coming up in fall river and what it was like and your people and stuff. I mean, fall river is a city, you know, it, it was a city of almost a hundred thousand people when I was a kid. You know, so, I mean, it's a city. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, it's a small city, um, but it's a tough city. It's a mill city. It's a textile city. It's it's the people who grew up there, who lived there, generations, worked in mills and, and 
and it's it's a blue collar town that that was predominantly of Portuguese descent. Um, that was the culture there. Um, you know, they built that city, they made that city, that culture, that that uh, ethnicity. Um, to this day, you go back to Fall River, and and the best restaurants in Fall River are all Portuguese restaurants. Right, right. Um, but you know, I was I come from a town where. On a Friday night, we would play in front of 3,000 people, 4,000 people in high school games. Basketball you know, was everything, right? A lot of tradition. And, and I remember in the movie, your brother said uh, you guys were quick, quick to drink, uh, quick to party, and, and quick to fight. Like, that was part of the culture and standing up for your friends and loyalty. It reminds me of an old, a good movie, you know, a good Boston movie. Um, yeah, which I which I love. You know, I grew up I grew up very Jewish in Manhattan, so it was kind of like the opposite uh, lifestyle for me. There was very little fighting. We stuck up for our friends, but more like wisecracking. And like if we went down to Fall River, we would have gotten the shit kicked out of us, probably. <laughs> possibly out of insecurity, yeah, right? Possibly, I mean. possibly, yeah. <laughs> um, but so like. Uh, when you broke your fucking wrist in um, in BC, did you did you feel the party kick in? Did you feel like I'm gonna do what I want now? I don't have to stay in shape. I don't have to show up. I could do what I want. You know, was it was it like that, or were you really pissed that you couldn't play your freshman year? No, I mean I was just I was I was a I was a mess. I mean I was doing an enormous amount of cocaine multiple days a week. Right. You know I was hooked into drug dealers in Boston that were driving up to BC to just hang around. And, you know, the amounts of cocaine that was, that I was consuming was just enormous for an 18 year old kid on a college campus. You know, I mean, it's, you know, up for 24, 48 hours, just going. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, listen, I knew I was a drug addict. I knew I was going to have a problem with it at BC when they told me that after the first drug test that they were going to test me randomly and more often and there was just no way i could put it down i didn't know how to live life without it um it was ingrained in me to to that you know i was if i drank i smoked if i smoked i did coke i mean that's just how it went they all they all came together and did you use with your friends like who were you using with for the most part oh whoever I mean, it didn't matter. Whatever bathroom stall I walked into, if it was there, then I would do it. It didn't matter who I did cope with. I mean, I wouldn't survive in today's day and age with cell phones and Snapchat and all that stuff. I would be all over social media. Right, right, um, right, right. Um, and you know, I mean... Please, I'm sorry. No, there was just no boundaries for me. You know, I didn't... Cocaine doesn't... You know, that it, it takes away those boundaries. You know, whoever had it, I would do it with. And did you did you find like everybody was buying you coke because you were the the basketball star in the team and all that stuff? Um, I mean there was a little bit of that, yeah. Um, but there was also you know I mean I bought a lot of coke myself, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that that's the thing. Everybody told me you know like oh your friends, your friends, your friends, and it's like nah man, I'm one of those friends, you know like. Oh, you got bad people around you. You need to get away from home. Like I traveled the world and I need to get away from places. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's amazing. So, and they kicked you out of BC. They did. And, uh, and Jerry Tarkanian took a risk on you and brought you to Fresno, <laughs> um, which is a beautiful story. And watching you show up at Fresno and the way he talks about you and the way you talk about him, it's just, it's just incredibly emotional. 
Um, and, and your and your your games there were so amazing. Your first game back at Massachusetts with with everybody like against you, and and, and what was that like to show up home to, uh, from California? So the backstory to that is that I think the game before UMass that was on ESPN and UMass was ranked nationally. They were a big time team, and I played I believe University of Oregon. Um, the game before and I was terrible. I mean, I, I was overmatched. I was, I felt dominated athletically. I felt, um, that it's possible. I wasn't good enough for that level. So I flew 5,000 miles across country thinking I'm about to get embarrassed on national TV in front of my hometown. And, um, and that wasn't the case. You know, my, again, my insecurities, like my addiction was telling me like, you might not be built for this. And, um, and I, I rose to the occasion and that was kind of the beginning of, of the wild ride for me in college basketball. I can't even imagine. Like after that game, did you, did you get crazy high? Like, do you remember that? (laughs) No, I don't remember. I was probably, I, there's a good chance I got crazy high. There's a good chance I got crazy drunk. I mean, I'm sure I let it all hang out. I mean, usually I don't. Um, the party continues once the buzzer sounds. Right. Um, and it seems like at, at Fresno, you started really going hard, like up all night, doing coke more, drinking more. Were there any other drugs like around? Were you doing painkillers? Were you tripping? Like, what was it like? Yeah, I mean, I did everything. I mean, you know, it's just whatever's around, you know, it's just. You know, I'll take Percocets, Vicodins. I mean, let's do lines. Let's do meth. Let's do speed. Let's do crank. Let's do, you know, whatever. Whatever's there, I was going to do mushrooms, acid. I mean, it doesn't, none of it mattered, you know. If it was going to take me away, you know, and it's put in front of me, I'd get after it. Yeah. When I, was, when I was young, I was a huge rock and roll fan, a huge movie fan, you know what I mean? Like a huge, like I loved reading about this stuff. I loved reading about like Jerry Garcia getting high or, or, or the Rolling Stones or John Lennon or all that stuff. I can't imagine that's what, what captured you. I, like what, what brought you into it in the first place? Just getting fucked up? What was it? Um, you know, there's multiple layers to it, right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's in my family. It's, right. you know, it's my upbringing, my, you know, the you know, emotional roller coaster I was raised on, um, you know, the stress that compounded over time with basketball and my inability to wrap my head around that and deal with it properly. I mean, there's so many layers to, to why it all began. Um, but I just knew at a very young age that, you know, I had a serious problem. I mean, most people at 18, you know, when you're not getting drug tested and you're kind of in your dorm room and you're making ends meet, um, you know, mine was very public. Like this kid can't even pass a drug test at 18. You know, he's testing positive for cocaine multiple times. We got to get rid of him. How, how did they um, test you? That's a stupid question. But did, I mean, couldn't you beat the test? Like, why didn't you beat the drug test? I've beaten drug tests. No. What happened? What did they do? Just quick cups, but you can't, you know, I mean, they make you, you know, you, you got to pee right in front of them. Right. It's all random. There's no, there's no room to, to slap the whizinator on your leg and show up with somebody else's urine or something. There's no, no, I, I, I wasn't built that way. I wasn't, I, I just didn't do it. You know what I mean? It was like, listen, if you got me, you got me. 
I mean, I just, I never went down that road. I never went down the road like, oh, let me drink bleach. Let me, right. let me, you know, mess up my, my, my drug screen. It was just like, hey, listen, you know, if you got me, you got me. Here it is. Right, right. Which is incredibly honorable. One of the really most emotional pieces, I mean, the movie is a fucking, a beautiful movie. Like, it's such a beautiful, inspirational movie. You know, and your life story is it's insane, you know, the highs and the lows and, and whatnot. But when you tested positive in, uh, in Fresno and you had that press conference where, you, where you're crying because your mom's in the room and the coach is in the room and the coach basically breaks down. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go to treatment, right, uh, in Utah, I think, and, and you said that you, you still couldn't listen when you were in that treatment. Do you remember that feeling? of like having such a low, but still not being able to hear the message when you went to treatment? You know, honestly, I think sometimes that's the the risk you take as a now, you know, being a parent of a 20 year old, right? Right. It's when you put a 21 year old in a treatment setting where, you know, you're mixed in with people who have gone much further down the road, your bottom comes up. You know, and and you sit there and you're like, God, like, I've never done that. I've never done this. Like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do this. Like, I can't believe these people are doing this with kids and I would never take it that far. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? So, so, so unfortunately at that age, you sit in the rooms and you listen and you say to yourself, instead of saying, I never want to get there, you say like, I should, I don't belong here. Right. I remember the first time I went to detox from heroin. Uh, It was a public detox in Manhattan. And uh, I was scared to death. You know, I remember there was a dude, I was in a dorm room and there was an older dude who, who didn't sleep at night. He just stared at me through the night. And uh, he told me he was, <clears throat> excuse me, he told me he was a vampire. I was just scared to death. I was like 20 years old. And I remember all day thinking I could still get high, but I'm not going to be like these guys. Was it kind of like that? Like, where, where yeah, you- yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's and again, that's that's the risk you take. I see it every day when parents want to send their children. It's like the culture of treatment and and the people who are in there, you know, plays a big part in your role of sustaining recovery and, and being motivated, you know, and, and sometimes it backfires. And for me, at 21 years old in a treatment center, listening to a bunch of 40, 50, 60 year olds talk about how bad and how low their life has got. I mean, I was calling home saying like, I promise you, I'll never take it this far. Right, right. And you, and you believe it, though. I mean, that's the funny yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I, I totally believed it. I remember that, that first detox, I was such a bullshit artist, and I was sitting with the counselor, and, um, you know, I still look good. I, I was actually producing television at the time, and she, she actually, like, I don't know what was wrong with her, but she kind of believed my bullshit and said I was going to be all right. And I, I mean, like, I, you know, I, I remember also something you said in because uh, this movie it's basically Chris's story and then it's intercut with Chris doing these motivational speeches at schools and and one of the early ones you're talking about the situation in that Boston dorm room where basically he came back to his dorm room and there are these two girls with some coke and uh, and said to him you want to do some coke and he was like no and they were like come on ha- ha- take a take a line and he was like no and he's and you said in the motivational speech, if you could go back to then and not take the line, like you would just you wish you could erase everything you had done, um, mm. which I found to be uh, I, I could relate to it. You know, um, 
but you help so many people. I'm sure it's a double-edged sword because you never would be able to reach these people if you went back to that kid. Right. And, you know, listen, over time in recovery, your perspective changes, right? And, you know, back then I was probably three and a half years sober doing this documentary. Right. Um, And, you know, the only thing I would change now, I would take my kids out of the trauma they suffered because of it. Right. I would, I would do everything. I, I, I would go through everything I've went through in life. You know, it's, it's, it's built character. It's, it's strengthened me. It's, it's allowed me to look at people with a much different empathetic lens. Um, you know, it's like, it's grounded me like recovery. My addiction with my recovery has allowed me to have a, a perspective on life that is much different than others. So would I change it today? No. Would I take my kids out of it? Yes. My son was nine years old when I was shooting heroin. Right. You know, my son was nine years old when the lights were going off in the house. My son was nine years old when I was heating my house with diesel fuel. My son was nine years old when my wife was on food stamps. Right. You know, like it was too much for him. I, I understand what you're saying. It's too much for a kid to to see that. And that I mean, I understand why you would regret that. Right. Um, don't sign up for that. No, no, no kidding. I, I actually was, was using when my daughter was, um, was one, I, I got clean, I got clean off everything when she was four. Um, and, and I got off heroin when she was one. So that's a miracle, um, for me, you know, it's something that I'm incredibly happy about. Um, fucking you get drafted by the nuggets. First of all, was there any irony in your head that you got drafted by a team called the nuggets and you were a, a drug addict? No. Yes. No, it didn't hit me that way. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I was fortunate to get drafted to a team that had a bunch of adults, right? Um, a bunch of veterans that, you know, for the most part had their life mapped out and figured out. And when I landed there as a Denver Nugget, um, you know, they embraced me. They knew me. The general manager who drafted me, Dan Essel, he knew my story. He knew what I'd been through. He had family members that have gone through alcoholism and addiction. So he was willing to give me a shot, and he put me in an amazing situation with people who said, we know who you are, we know your story, and we're going to make sure that story ends here. Right. And it's going to be a new story. So that year with the Nuggets was probably the best year that I ever had playing basketball. Well, it's an amazing um, story. Like Nick Van Exel and Antonio McDice take, take you under their wing. And, and, and I mean, from what it says in the film is that every night, instead of going to a bar or a club, you, you were, he, they, they took care of you. They were looked out for you. They went to dinner with you. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not every night, but yeah, for the most part, I, and it wasn't just Nick Van Exel and McDice. It was Popeye Jones. who was a coach in the NBA. It was, Bryant Smith, who who is an amazing human being, who went to UVA. We, you know, I had Chauncey Billups, right, who had a, had a great impact on me at that time. So I, I had I had men, like real men. They were men, and I, you know, and that's something that I, you know, don't throw around. Like it's, you know, in hindsight, looking back at that age with those men in my life. I was protected. I was looked after. I was mentored. I was coached. I was, I had people around me who wanted to see me succeed free and break free, you know, from, from my struggle. Well, it's interesting. Cause like these teams, you hear about all these players on these teams partying and this and that, was there nobody partying on the nuggets? 
Oh, no, people party. I mean, there's no doubt about that. People party, but they, you know, some people can party. Some people can't. No right? shit. You, and I, yeah. you know, we can't. Yeah, <laughs> we yeah. can't party. Totally. Um, but it's like, it's very beautiful, the vested interest they had in you. And like, and that just shows a lot of character in them. Like, it made me wonder, like, why did they do it? You know what I mean? Like, I know I would do it because I'm in recovery. But if I wasn't in recovery, how much would I look out for somebody who had something I didn't understand? Did you ever look at that? Yeah, I just think I was surrounded with people who were just, they had a wisdom, right? I, I think I was fortunate. Some of them had family members that struggled with drugs and alcohol, so they saw it from a different perspective. And they were like, listen, like, my mother, you know, was on cocaine. My brother, you know, was on heroin. And I, I'm not going to let you go down this road. So I, I think they were... They were wise beyond their years, whether it was because of how they were raised or the trauma they suffered in their childhood or what they've had to witness or go through personally. They took a vested interest in helping me and, and, and from an emotional support standpoint at that age. And, and it was it was a again, it, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm still very close um, and in contact with most of my teammates at the Nuggets because of that. It's amazing. Was Mellow there then, or was it was pre-Mellow? No. Pre-Mellow. No, pre-Mellow. It was, you know, it was like, it was a kid by the name of James Posey and I were drafted. Um, it was Van Exel, it was McDice, it was Popeye Jones, Roy Rogers, Keon Clark, who um, went to federal prison, was one of my teammates. Okay. Um, you know, so there were, we had a, we had a, 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 a very, um, strong team the west Co- the west Co- western conference was ridiculous that was when kobe and Shaq were together yeah and, yeah and Carl malone and john stockton yeah. i mean yeah they were the west was loaded still is um what was i gonna say fucking that's where things get really really upside down though you go home that summer and uh and, and who who gave you the oxys that summer like what was the story I was just, you know, they, they were just starting to float around. It was in 1999. Yeah. And, you know, 99, 2000, and they were just starting to float around. And where I was from, the only people you could get them from were people who had HIV or AIDS or terminally ill from cancer. And people were, well, buying them off them on the streets. Um, and just a kid that I grew up with was like, you know, there's a new painkiller. It's like crazy. It's taken like five, six, seven perks at a time. And I was like, you know, again, as an addict, I had no fear of it. You know, I was like, let me try it. And I, I bought a 40 milligram pill and I ate it. I started sweating, puking, but loved the feeling. And, uh, and you know, that turned to 1600 milligrams a day. Right. You know, I mean, and, and when you go at the end of the summer, you go back to uh denver uh and you you had a habit didn't you oh yeah but i but i was i was still willing to break free i wanted to break free from it i didn't understand the severity of it oxycontin in 1999 like that's when you were hit, starting to hear that it it, it just kind of started hitting like national news that there was this thing called hillbilly heroin right and i was like shit like you know, in Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, and then it, it kind of skipped all the states, and they focused on Maine. 
And so it was Maine, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, and they had this thing called Hillbilly Heroin. And I'm like, fuck, man, like, that's what I'm on. I'm on Hillbilly Heroin. <laughs> right? And yeah. then, and, you know, I went back to Denver with the intent to get, get off of it. Um, and then I was traded. You know, I was traded right back home to where I had complete access to it. Well, that's and, just, that's the most fucked up aspect of the story to me you know he comes back uh, chris goes back to fucking denver to 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 get straight with his team you know a place where you were pretty safe you know you had a a sober rookie year you know what i mean you were doing well and and they trade you to the to boston you know and i'm from the knicks so so fuck the celtics but that's that's a whole other thing but they trade you to where i mean we suck so we'll talk about that later if we have time but um fucking Jesus Christ to be to go back home where you're at such risk you know did you ever talk to Celtics people since then where wasn't anybody thinking of your well-being I mean your brother in the movie is like fuck the Celtics like what's your opinion about it Yeah I mean listen for me it was the worst place to get traded to um just because you know, of my accessibility, right? And the comfort level I had around drugs uh, in that area. And so it was by far the worst place for me to get traded to. But here, here I am, like, talk about the ultimate, like, uh, being conflicted, right? I'm like, I dreamt of that moment. Like, I pretended to be Celtics. Like, that's that was something that I walked into that that arena as a little boy with my father and looked up at the numbers and I'm like, this is unbelievable. And so, you know, to, to, to have the feeling of now you are a Boston Celtics, but yet you're going back with a major drug addiction and the wheels are going to fall off. Right. Um, Also just crazy accessibility to drugs. And, And you could just see you at the press conference, you know, you look like a junkie, you know what I mean? You're just fucked up. Um, and you talk about that in the movie that you, you see it in your face. You know, if you've ever been in a situation where you're dope sick and you have to be somewhere, the only thing you're thinking is how the fuck am I going to get well? And, um, you know, when I, when I watch the movie and I see you at the, the conference, I'm thinking you look scared, but you were just dope sick. You, you know, right? Oh, brutally. I mean, listen, every Celtics picture that is posted, every, every I'm either high or I'm sick. There's not a picture of me playing for the Boston Celtics that I could say I was healthy at that point. There was there was no in-between. I was either under an enormous amount of Oxycontin or I was in early stage withdrawal. I mean, there is no way around it. So, I mean, and, and, it's, and it's evident, it's obvious. If I, I can't even look at my Celtics pictures because, I mean, I'm... I'm you're pasty. You're pasty and dope sick in them. Yes. Oh, brutal. Yeah. I, I've been there. I understand. Um, now, around the NBA, was there a growing opioid addiction or were you alone out there? Oh, I was alone. Yeah. I was alone. You yeah, weren't like freebasing with Lamar Odom on the side? No. No, never. Never. Um, you know, that, that it was just a culture that I, it was very private, right? Like people kind of went off and did their own thing. You know, if you look at most teams in the NBA, they weren't, they don't have that special. I mean, some do now, but, and I'm sure, I'm sure others have, have had them in the past, but like the, the Denver Nuggets, we stuck, we stuck together. We hung out together. We spent time together. We gambled together. We played cards. We, 
landed and, and got on the bus and we got to the hotel and we, we all got our bags in our rooms and was like, let's go get dinner together. Um, the Celtics, that, it wasn't it wasn't like that. You know, it, it, everybody kind of went off and did their own thing. And, you know, I for sure wasn't going to like approach the topic and say like, hey, you know, you ever take oxys or, you know, any potentials. Right. Now, mind you, you know, in that in that world, people get hurt a lot, you know? So that's the thing about painkillers, opiates, right? You know, like my wife, she takes them, she throws up, she hates them. Yeah. You know? And, and it's just like, you're either blessed with it or you're cursed with it. You know, and I, I love the feeling. I loved it from the first time I took a painkiller when I was in eighth grade and had knee surgery. I was like, wow, this is phenomenal. Yeah, I, I remember um, the first time that I did heroin. The first time I did heroin, I got really sick. It, it was the I, I threw up all night, and I woke up with some chick that I hadn't intended on waking up with. Um, but then the second time, uh, I woke up and I felt like every I, I was still high the next day, and I felt like everything was just right with the world, kind of thing. And, and I knew, and I had a lot of fear. At the time, like I, I was in a, you know, I was producing TV, I was hosting a show on TV and I was nervous, you know, and, and when I did it, I felt calm. Did you, did you get that kind of thing from opiates, like an inner calm? Oh, I loved it. I mean, there was no other feeling. I mean, it was, for me, it was exactly what I needed. Um, it, like, you know, and for me, obviously it affects people differently, right? But you know, when I try to tell parents now, it's like I played professional basketball on an enormous amount of opiates. Like if you gave me 1600 milligrams, I would shovel every driveway in the neighborhood. Right. I'd mow every lawn. I would go to every old person's house and be like, I I'll do your lawn today. Right. Take, op take opiates out of me. I'm on the couch curled up. So it, 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 it allowed me to function physically at a high level when I was under the influence of a high amount of fucking opiates. Right. Tell that story, that crazy, crazy story. Uh, when, when you're, when the, the game in the Boston garden and you ran out of pills and, and tell that story, please. So I was, I was playing and I was in early withdrawal, right? So I'm starting to sneeze. I'm starting to dry heave. I'm starting to sweat. And I'm going to play a prominent role in this game, right? I'm going to be a starter. And I got, I got the news that I was going to, I was going to play big minutes and I was in a panic and I knew my drug dealers would come up and bring them to me. Um, I'd leave them tickets. I'd meet them after the game. I would buy what I need for that night and hopefully for the next few days. Um, but I was out and I called them and they jumped in their car and they drove and the, by the time the game was getting ready to start, they were out front in their car in traffic. And I told them to pull into the players parking lot. And I ran out and I'm in my Celtics warmups, yeah. you know, and, and there's like 10 minutes to go on the scoreboard and, you know, like a good drug addict does, you know, I'm calling them every 10 minutes from my Celtics locker. Like, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And, um, you know, finally he was outside and I had a decision like just suck it up and play this game or run out there and grab him. And I ran out there and, you know, here I am. It's like one of the biggest moments of my life athletically. And I'm, I'm hostage, you know, I'm like completely at the mercy 
of these little fucking green pills. But you got the pills, right? No doubt. Yeah, of course. And you I put mean, them in, you, you took them. And like, that's the craziest thing to me about drug addiction. Like, forget the misery and, and forget the consequences and forget the death. <clears throat> Just the, the fact that when you're in opiate withdrawal, you can't do anything. And then you take the pill and your body is coursing with, with vibrance. You know, it's like a, it's like a supernatural kind of sensation. Uh, I, I remember I was, I was on a job in, in Texas and uh, I was going to interview the bass player from Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones, and I was dope sick. And, um, and, the, and, the, and the dope never got there, okay? So I missed it. The next day the dope got there and it was like I was reborn. What was it like going from dope sick to high at a Celtics game? Shit, it, to me it was just, it was the normal, it was the normal that I needed. Right. Right? Right. It's just, that was my normal. Right. And I didn't want to be abnormal. And, and uh, you know, opiate addiction is so, so perverse. I mean, it's so sick and it's so, so cunning. It's like. So fucked up. I mean, it, it, the reality is, is you can, you can be in full withdrawal. And when your drug dealer picks up the phone, the dopamine starts firing off. And I know. you're. You know, and before you even get the drugs, you stop feeling better. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing that that can happen. That a, a text right. can be like a shot or something. Right. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, go ahead. Uh, well, because it's like I don't want to take up your whole world, but I do. <laughs> but I want to cover a bunch of other stuff. So I gotta we gotta yeah. keep moving because you you wind up leaving. What happened? How did it end at Boston? They just kicked you off the team, or you got sick, or you got hurt. Yeah, I, I, I was just, I was a mess. I missed a couple of, I missed one flight. I, I was late for practices. I was the first one to leave because, you know, there were days I needed to meet people. Um, you know, I mean, it was very evident that I wasn't engaged, right? That I wasn't a professional. <laughs> I was, right. and, and that's what I tell people all the time. Like I was a professional athlete two hours a day and I was a professional drug addict 22. Right. You know, like that's where my heart, that's where my head, that's where my everything about me was focused on my addiction and 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 how I was going to maintain and be my normal. Um, so Celtics, Celtics dropped off and, you know, Europe began. Right. And you started in Italy and um, and, and you were basically bringing oxys with you. Until one time you didn't have enough, right? Yep. And uh, and that's when you go to an Italian bus station. Yep, I'm outside in a in like the downtown center, and I see obviously, you know, if there's one thing that's universal, it's drugs. Right. Right, and you really don't have to speak the language to get it. Um, and I just watched the movement of a couple of guys, you know, walking over to cars, and I was like, I'm in, and. I pulled up. He jumped in. He thought I wanted cocaine. I wanted heroin. How did you explain yeah. it? Tell that story. This is my I kind of story. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the the only thing I could think to do was just point to my vein and my arm. Um, but you hadn't shot dope at that point. No, no. And that's but that's the only thing I could think of. And he pulled it. He literally he had the drugs a string tied to his tooth. And he grabbed the string in his mouth, and I watched him pull it up. Shut the fuck up. He had a string from his stomach tied to his tooth? And pulled it up. That's crazy. And a bag came out. 
Right. And in it were 15 balloons of black tie heroin. Right. And he shot me up that day. Ah. And, so you're in, so was, you're sick. You're in the car, the bus station, and this Italian fucking uh, dealer shoots you up in the car. Right. Wow. And that was the first time you ever you ever shot up. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was uh, the wheels fell off. Right. And then you went to Turkey and China, and 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 you had to basically have this thing. I mean, did you ever go back to oxys, or was it heroin from there on? No. 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 I was done with oxys. Once I got that taste. Um. You know, listen, in, the, in a pinch, I'm sure there was multiple times where I would do it, right? Um, you know, if, if there was no heroin, then I would take I would take oxys. I mean, you know, it got to the point where I would take 15 Benadryls if I didn't have heroin. Of course. You know, I would drink, I'd drink three bottles of NyQuil, whatever it took. Um, but I never really went back to oxys and started shooting. Um, and I probably shot heroin for about six years straight, you know, for about a good six years every day. Um, but you know, doing it in Turkey, finding it in China. How did you, how did you deal with that? Oh, I just, you went to the worst neighborhoods and you dealt with the people that you knew that you had to deal with. And you you were were pointing to your arms for those guys too. Is that the universal sign for, I need heroin? Yeah, point to your nose, point to your arms. You look like a third base coach, you know. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but, 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 but they figure it out. Um, and they know. Listen, you're a foreigner in a place you're not supposed to be. So right there in itself is saying, like, you know, he's seeking out something that we have. He wouldn't be here if he wasn't. Um, but I mean, I did drugs in Iran. I did drugs in Poland. I did drugs in China. I did drugs in Turkey. I did drugs in Italy. Everywhere I went, you know, I mean, I was able to find it. Which which country had the best heroin? Just out of curiosity, was it Turkey? That's China. the legend. China. China. Why? Why the Chinese heroin? I don't know, man. It just had it. It was brutal. It was it, like I never nodded out. Like, you know, you cannot. Like my wife will vouch for that. Like she never saw me out because of heroin and now mind you I, I didn't do it like i wasn't a social i wanted to be with my family right i wanted to i want to shoot my heroin get right and then spend the day with my family and my wife we were married and she never ever saw me once not out that's crazy until in we, itself until we went to china and i couldn't keep my i couldn't keep my head up and how did she react to it? Because she knew that you, you had drug problems. The whole world knew. Right. But, but you know, it's like you make, a, you, you make the people who love you as sick as you. Well, your wife, you know? your wife is just the most incredible, seems to be the most incredible, loving person in the world. Um, you have such a beautiful family. Um, and you never got high with her. Like, that was never part of no, your relationship with no, her. No, 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 no. No, my wife's the saint. My wife, you know, she smoked a little pot back in the day, drank, you know, but she was a college kid, extremely bright, traveled abroad, studied abroad, like super, super together. Had no idea um, that when I put that ring on her finger, like things were going to go completely, you know. I mean, here she's marrying. I was a senior in college, you know, and. I was pretending that everything was right. And I was able to, at times, 
manage it. Um, but yes, she knew of the opiates. But again, when you're married to somebody who spends 22 hours a day trying to focus on not getting caught, you become really good at not getting caught. Right. So when she sees you, know, you nodding out, what did, what did she say? Like, what uh, was that she moment? She was devastated. Just right. devastated. She knew. She you know? knew. Yeah, yeah. She knew. She was found in. She was finding empty baggies and residue, and you know. So she she knew. Um, and it's heartbreaking. I mean, listen. Like that's why there's not a sadder to me. There's not a sadder thing to see than somebody's neck parallel. You know, and it, it's. You know, it's tragic to see someone putting themselves that in that position. And she witnessed me do it multiple times in China. Right, right, right. Um, and then and then you wound up then it's like this this crazy story of you flying home and deciding to go use with your buddy in, in California as opposed to going back to the family, which is like the legendary Chris Heron story now. Right. It's one of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, is there is, by the way, before, before I ask you to tell that story, like, is there, is there a story like a crazy drug story that you can think of that, that isn't like uh, that can be a dopey exclusive Chris Heron crazy drug story? So I was playing, I was playing basketball in, in Turkey. Yeah. And I had no, I, I wasn't, I wasn't finding access and I was about three weeks into my stay in Turkey, and there was no way I was going to smuggle drugs into Turkey. Um, Midnight Express, from, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I was. I mean, there's no way I'm bringing drugs into Turkey. I'm like, I can hit these streets. I'll find them. Couldn't find them. Sent wired five thousand dollars home for a, for a guy to send me five thousand dollars worth of oxycontin. Wow. The plan was to tape them inside the Boston Herald newspaper. So you got a thick newspaper, the Oxycontins are in it, the newspaper's folded, they're all taped, and nobody will feel them. And I am obviously, like you know, patiently waiting, impatiently yeah, waiting. bugging out, <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And finally, I get a call that the package has arrived, and my interpreter for the Turkish basketball team said, it's not going to be delivered. You got to go get it. And I'm like, Oh fuck. fuck. <laughs> so now I got midnight express or midnight dope sickness. Right. And I chose midnight express. I jumped in the car. I go, I bring multiple forms of identification. I walk in, hand them my passport. They take it, look it over, walk in the back room, spend about five minutes. And I'm saying to myself at any minute, I'm about to get lit up. And the person comes out, has, hands me the package, which is wrapped in tape, and I sign for it. I walk out. I get in the car. I drive away. I open the package, and sh sure enough, all the Oxycontin circles are indented into the newspaper. The, oh tape has been, the tape has been peeled, and somebody, to this day I do not know, but somebody wrote a note saying, this is tragic, man. This is real tragic. Like, you need to get your life together. You have children. You have a family. You know, you had a career. You're lucky I'm the one that intercepted this package because you should be in jail right now. Holy shit. So I was like, you know. But there were no so, pills. They took the pills. 
No, no pills. The pills were gone. But it was like I got, I got, I got smacked by God in that one. That's insane. Know? That's an insane story. Because on one hand, you know, you're not doing life in jail in Turkey, and you get to be a father to your children. But on the other hand, you're crazy dope sick in Turkey. That's a crazy story. Wishing that there were like four left over and I'd go on a high speed chase and I'd eat the four, take away the sickness and just get caught from that. You know, like right. that's the insanity of it. Right. Yeah. I'm like so, so bummed out. Like, oh, my God, why did this guy have to be the one to get the package? Why couldn't it just got past him? Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, in the, in the one in California, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm up for days. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure in hindsight looking at it. You know, the coke was cut with some meth. Um, you know, my kids are coming out to visit me. My wife, it's a new start. It's a new beginning. I'm like, listen, I promise you I'm going to make this right. Maybe we can relocate and move out here. It's beautiful. And you believe and, it, right? You believe all the good talk, right? Yeah. and But but as I'm having these conversations over a month, two months, now the wheels are starting to get lower, right? Before they fall off. And I know now, like... I'm in trouble. And now I can't stop because we are 24 hours away from my family landing. And instead of stopping three nights ago, I'm on my fourth night. And and I get in the car and I'm driving. I'm supposed to be driving to the airport to pick them up in San Francisco. And I end up in Modesto. And I, I think people are following me. And... I pull my car over. I'm in the breakdown lane. I throw all the drugs outside out, out of my passenger window and I start running down the highway. And now, now the people aren't following me. They're chasing me. And so I run through traffic on the highway and stop running towards traffic. Traffic is now starting to stop somewhat. And I'm begging people to let me in their car. Oh my God. To, to get me away. And then, a minute, two minutes later, I see police lights. And when I saw the lights coming, I sprinted to them. I, I was running so fast, I fell. I, I knocked half of my front tooth off in the highway. And I got up, and they put me in the back seat of the car. And um, I, I thought the police had German shepherds, and I thought they were biting my legs. Oh, my um, God. It's like crazy meth psychosis shit. Oh, you, you couldn't. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it, yeah. I mean, I thought the dogs were in the back seat with me. You know, I woke up the next day in Modesto jail. Um, you know, it was a hundred degrees out. My clothes were ripped. I had nothing on me. My family was left at the airport. They were heartbroken. Yeah. Um, I was just completely defeated. I mean, that was, that was a low that should have been the low. Right. And it, and it wasn't enough. I think one of the other incredible things in the movie was was the way it's done with you, like, talking to all these different groups and the way you speak differently to a group of high school kids versus you're speaking to, like, I, I assume they were, it was a prison. Everybody has tattoos on their faces and their necks and stuff, and you're telling that story to them, and everybody is laughing their heads off which is what this show is about. It's about knowing that you did the worst thing in the world, but why it's funny that we survived and, and, and like how different it is to, to tell your story to somebody who it's going to scare the shit out of and somebody who's going to laugh because they know right. what it felt like. Uh, what's it like speaking to so many different populations? 
you know, it's, 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 um, I love it. I love, I love being in front of kids, right? I've, I've changed my message to kids and I have a new documentary coming out on ESPN. Um, it's called the first day and this is actually my first time ever talking about it publicly. We haven't released it. We haven't, we haven't released it yet. Um, but it's, I think when it comes to kids and right and, and getting out in front of them and prevention, I think we, we've spent the last 50 years talking about the worst day and not the first day. It's let's tell kids how bad drugs are for them. And in the end, instead of talking about why it's beginning. Um, and that's that emotional intelligence. That's that social acceptance. That's that void that kids need. Um, explain filled, explain like, that a little bit more. So it's, it's like we always talk about the worst day of our addiction as opposed to the first day is what you're saying. Right. Yeah. I think if you if you polled the kids in America about drug addiction, if you ask them to bring a picture to school of a drug addict, they're going to bring what's equivalent to stage four. Right. Right. Near death. Right. That's 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 what they think a drug addict looks like. We've done a horrible t- job at branding this illness of addiction. It's 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 so like fear driven, crime driven. It's like you're going to be in handcuffs in a prison, a prostitute. You're going to be homeless. Right. Like they don't they don't talk about that. It all began as a 13 year old kid trying to fit in. Right. But that's where it gets weird. Like I have a friend of mine who has a 17 year old son and just found out that he's been smoking pot and drinking a lot. And it's like, I mean, like, where do you who's normal and who's like us? And how do you know from the first time? And like, why shouldn't kids be allowed to have fun if they're not going to go down our path? It's very confusing. But it is confusing somewhat. But that's the thing. That's where we failed, in my opinion. Why you said it just now. Why shouldn't kids be able to have fun? That's where we've thrown and surrendered to this. Why do kids need drugs and booze to have fun? Man? Oh, yeah, I know. I, I hear you. Before, before I smoked weed, I was a straight, straight nerdy kid, and I had fun hanging out with my friends. You know right. what I mean? Like It wasn't until I was in a weird place where I needed to smoke pot every day, which turned into you know, a 15-year heroin addiction. Um, right. Uh, it's just an amazing thing, like who has the gene, who has the affliction, who doesn't, you know? But that's but that's that's even more that's even more reason to focus on emotional growth, right? And social acceptance and cues and all that stuff to be to be hyper aware of who we are at a young age and, and resilient and 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 well because it's such it's so scary that that's this. When I speak, I tell people all the time, the scariest thing about addiction. Nobody knows who has it. Yeah. Until like and, no, until it's obvious, got, right? Until it's obvious. You got no clue that you're the one, man. And you think like, okay, I'm down here in this basement and I'm smoking weed and I'm fucking drinking out of red solo cups and playing all these fun drinking games, but you have no idea what's coming your way. You have no clue that it's coming. And if we can, if we can raise that, if we can prevent, let the brain develop, let the science, you know, the numbers and, and, and believe in it, that if we can keep kids away from drugs and alcohol to a certain age of, of, of brain development, and, and if we can get to that frontal lobe part of it where it's fully developed, 
that the chances of them being a drug addict or suffering, it drops drastically. You know, like that's huge, right? And I, I can't speak on the science. I don't know it. I just know one thing. I was a motherfucker in high school. I was a McDonald's All-American. I had documentaries, Rolling Stone magazine in college, Sports Illustrated. I could play and give you all you wanted and all you could handle on a Friday night in front of 20,000 people. But at midnight with 20, I couldn't function. Right. Amazing. So... So that's where somebody should have said to me at 15 years old, like, yo, you, you're, you are killing life. Like, you, I just watched you score 40 points in front of 4,000 people at 15 years old. But at 11 o'clock at night, you can't even hang out with kids you've known your whole life, dude. Well, nobody could say it to you. You know what I mean? You're the guy. No. That's, why, that's why you're the guy. You know what I mean? You can do this. You know what I mean? You can bring it to these kids. I mean, your story is so fucking valuable, um, and it's amazing, you know what I mean? And, and also, like, you're obviously, you know, obviously you were a sick basketball player, but you're pretty fucking good at this, you know, for not knowing the science, this frontal lobe shit, it seems to roll off your tongue pretty well, which is great, and, um, and is that basically the, the focus of the Heron Foundation in general? So the Heron Foundation, I started it. It's a, it's a cool story, right? So this young girl, when I was, she was 14 years old, she asked me to prom. And I was at Fresno. I was a senior. And I wasn't going to a prom. <laughs> like, yeah. hey, you don't want me as your fucking prom date. Right. Trust me. Uh-huh. The, night, the night never ends. And, and I'm not going to put some 14-year-old girl in a situation where I'm getting drunk at her prom. Um, and... So long story short, I go back to Fresno to do a book signing. And who's standing at the table was this girl who's now in her 20s. And she tells me she's struggling with oxys. And I said, you know, I'm two years sober. I'm going to help you. And my wife and I, we put some money together and we got her a sober house out in New England after she went to treatment. And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to find a way to help people get into treatment and do sober living. And over the last seven years, eight years, we've given over $3 million in scholarships. Amazing. We've paid for like 900 sober houses. We've, we have almost a million kids in the prevention program. We have family support groups online, virtual support groups. So yeah, I think we have over 700 runners in our running uh, project. So, you know, like, listen, if it wasn't for someone saying, I'm going to find you a place and give you a chance, I, I, I'd be dead today. So that's the least I can do. And, and, and that's what the Heron Project has evolved into, um, which is, to me, it's one of the most, I've never taken a dime from it. I only donate. And that's what it's about for me. It's about, it's about giving back and giving people an opportunity like I got. And not only the opportunity that I got, but the opportunity my kids and my family got. Wow, that's amazing. And, and if, if any, I mean, our fans, they call themselves, we call them the Dopey Nation. If any of the Dopey Nation wants to get involved with it, how can they do it? Or how can they get help? Or how can they help you? Just the Heron Project, man. Just check it out. Heron Project. I mean, you know, it's, it's it hit the website. You know, we have, like I said, the family support groups are um, unbelievable. Um, you know, if people need assistance with treatment, we have that line as well. Um, and, and people for sober living. I mean, we send them gift boxes. We, we, we supply them. Listen, my foundation, <coughs> we help you get into treatment. We support you in sober living. 
and then we give you a recovery coach for a year for free. Amazing. So, you know, you're connected through and through. You have that connection for, for, for almost 13 months. And that's, I mean, that's like, it should, I mean, what do you do when it doesn't work for these kids? Like, does it kill you? Like, I mean, I'm sure the success is incredibly gratifying, but when kids like, cause like, there's no telling why somebody goes out half the time. Right. You know, like, like when my friend Chris died, like he, he was on his way to getting his PhD. You know, our show was growing. He had a beautiful girlfriend. He worked in a fucking sober house and he went right. out out of nowhere. You know, like, what do you do when, when people don't make it? Like, how does it affect you? And what do you do with the randomness of this whole thing? You live for them. You know, you live, you live the life that they wanted. You right. know, you live the life that they really worked hard um, to attain, right? I mean, that's how I look at it. Like, I'm, I'm unbelievably blessed to claim a seat, to pass a basket, to collect a chip, to hand out a chip to work the steps, to just, like, I'm in the thick of it. Like, I love being in the thick of it because, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to win every single one of them. Right. But you're going to change people and you're going to help people and you, and you're going to watch their kids, their Christmas change, you know, like their birthdays become different, their parties, you know, everybody's smiling and right. You know, it's like, that's that's what I want to be part of. Like that's that's the that's the that that's that's the juice, you know. Like that's what you feel for. Like I I chase death for a feeling, man. I chase death for a feeling. I took a chance at dying every day for eight years, and I'm just blessed. I don't chase death for a feeling anymore, man. And and I don't want anybody to live life that way. And you do this, I mean, you get, you get a high off this though, don't you? Don't you chase this for a different feeling? No doubt, because it's part of it, right? I mean, listen, we get sober service work is part of it, right? Yeah. I, believe in, I believe in service work. I believe that, you know, we're wired to help others. And, and I think, you know, we're wired to have that connection with people, right? To me, I see a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, you know, they need affirmation, Right. They need a pat on the back. They need a hug. That's why we hug, man. Because yeah. We need them. And that's the beauty of it. So, you know, that's that's something that I, I, I have dedicated my life to. I believe in it. And, and you know, the, the fucked up thing about heroin addiction, the fucked up thing about addiction in general, like people tell you once you go down that road that there's no return. Even the stigma has been built so so it's so fit and system systematic that it's like you're still going to be a loser right no you're not no you're not like i I'm, I'm more successful today than i've ever been in my life exactly well that was the funny right? that was the, one of the moments and, and i'm gonna let you go in a second because i've kept you a little too long but that was one of the funniest moments in the movie is when you go back to fresno and you see the coach and he's like you look great and you were like thanks and he's like, how are you doing? And you're like, I'm doing good. And he's like, well, you said that last time you were here. And you were like, yeah, I always used to say that. Um, I mean, that's like, we're, we're very much, we, we struggle with that boy who cried wolf syndrome, but we can get better. You know, that's the point. You know, it, it's both sides. Like we can get better, but we can also get worse. I mean, right? We can get better. We can get worse. We can live, we can die. But I'll tell you one thing. There's no ceiling on recovery. Right. Like you, you can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish if you live that life. And that's, 
that's what I think has restricted people in their recovery, right? They feel they set the bar low for themselves, even in recovery. It's like, oh, I'm a recovering heroin addict, so, you know, I can only be this for the rest of my life. You can be whatever the fuck you want to be. And if you were so crazy that you were willing to go to those lengths to do heroin, who knows what you can do on the other side? No doubt. If you think of the work you put into it. Exactly. Chris, thank you so much, man. You're an you're amazing, welcome, you're amazing inspiration and a great guest, and I really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. It was very thank fun you, having you. Have a great one. Be well, okay? All right. You too. Take care. All right, bye. Fucking Chris Heron hitting you with the dopey. I mean, that's some serious dopey story right there. And um, like just when you were scared that dopey wasn't going to be dopey, there's Chris Heron with the fucking dopey. And of course, just to hear the phrase hitting you with the dopey uh, makes me think about Chris, uh, not Chris Heron, but uh, dopey Chris. And, um, you know, uh, it's coming up on a year since he died, which is pretty fucking crazy. Uh, And it's been a long year and it's been a short year and there's been a ton of changes for me and for probably all of you. And um, I don't know. There are things that I do. And I, it just makes me think of Chris. And from time to time, I'll listen to the old episodes like I told you. And, you know, it's mind-blowingly tragic to consider. It's just mind-blowingly tragic. And I have to admit that sometimes I feel guilty about making the show without him. But um, I never would have chosen this. You guys know that. He knows that. I never would have chosen to make the show without him. Um, I just didn't have the choice. And I wanted to keep making the show, so I did. And... Um, And I don't, you know, I'm not the kind of person that says, I know he would have wanted it this way, but I think he would have, you know, and, um, I have a bulletin board up in the attic and on the bulletin board, it's like a bunch of pictures of my family and some old pictures I took and some weird stickers. And, uh, I have a picture of Chris from his, uh, from the funeral mass. And, uh, I also have, I think they made prayer cards from the funeral mass and I have one on the fridge. So I always see Chris and, um, he was so handsome and he was so young and um, I know he didn't want to die. And sometimes when we do the show, uh, I forget to just put that message out there that uh, it's obvious, I guess. Everybody knows that if you, if you do drugs, if you shoot heroin, if you smoke crack, if you shoot Coke, that, uh, you know, the odds of dying are greatly, you know, they go up especially if you're doing opiates with all this fentanyl. Fentanyl definitely killed Chris. It definitely killed Todd. It definitely killed Andrew, uh, the dopey intern who never got to intern because uh, of his overdose. You know, fentanyl is, uh, is, is the fucking plague on junkies. So if you're a junkie and you don't want to die, I, I don't recommend fucking shooting dope, you know? That's just something I just want to put out there. I should put it out there every episode, but I want to put it out there now. Um... Now, there's an old listener of the show, amazing storyteller, who uh, I think he was anxious to come back with the dopey, and he sent in uh, just a a robustly, I like the word robust, but a robustly dopey story. So here he is, legendary dopey voicemailer, the great Tim from Philly. Yo, Dopey Nation. What's up, guys? This is Tim from Philly. Uh, calling in with a story. Um, so uh, back 15 years ago, height of my addiction, um, I was uh, I had kidnapped 
This is a really this is really sick. I some I, I met this woman in rehab. She was like sixty five years old, little white lady. Um, met her in rehab. We became close friends just through you know she kind of she knew a lot about like cool stuff, art and food, and and we just became close. So when we got out, the friendship continued, and uh, I'm gonna just try to condense this. So eventually, I start using, and. Me and this woman had stayed friends, so uh, she finds out, and so she is just wants to get involved. She she will just just like that. She's like, well, I want to try, and I was like, shooting drugs, and this lady wants to try, and and I I really think she just enjoyed spending time and being around me. I don't know. I, I kind of have that way. This happened with another guy. Uh, Dave knows that story too. I don't know. I don't know which voicemail you're going to use, but it's similar situation where it's just like, you know, this woman just all of a sudden wants to start fucking shooting drugs. You know, she, she had done acid and shit in the past, but this was like hardcore drugs and I dragged her into it. Um, she had some money and you know, we would, we would say, you want to go on an adventure. That's what we would say when we talked and, and an adventure meant take a ride down to Kensington and pick up some coke and dope, then go back to her parents' house, who had just passed away, and go in the kitchen uh, while her brother, who is mentally disabled, sat, but still, like, coherent, and, like, he just had, like, a little bit, some sort of, some sort of illness, but, like, was still there in the living room while we shot drugs in her kitchen. Um... And, you know, we would do it other places too, but like that's, that's one of, that was where we would normally go because it was like a safe place and we didn't have to worry about anybody because her brother like just sat in the living room like a zombie and paid no attention. So uh, one day, uh, I'm going to tell this story. It was, it was like the craziest day. Uh, so we go cop and I had been going to the same corner in Kensington for probably a year it had been a solid corner you could get powder cocaine and deep really decent heroin back when you know philly had that you know really potent heroin and you could still get good bags of coke that you know you smell like gas fish scale stuff really good um and so i go to my normal spot and uh, I, you know, it's the same thing every time I park in the same spot. I get my works from the same, you know, same. Everything was very ritualistic. Um, and she was with me, so I park my car and I walk a few blocks to the spot. And the normal guy that I usually deal with isn't there, but there's people out, so it seems as though the set's open. So I go, and uh, you know, they approach me. Yo, what do you want? What do you want? And I'm like, let me get, uh, you know, six bags of dope and four bags of powder whatever it was and they're like all right and they're like walk over here and that that was normal like you'd cross the street and you know i and i gave him the money and like he walked across the street and you know i'm standing there for then it becomes longer than normal right and so eventually he walks back over and he's like keep walking yo and i'm like what what do you mean keep walking like I didn't get any drink. He's like, keep walking. And he lifts his shirt up and he's got a gun under there. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck? I'm like, bro, I'm like, I'm, I'm sick, man. Please, you know, like, don't, don't do this. Please, I come here every day. And he's just like showing the gun. He's like, yo, 
keep fucking walking, dog. And I'm like, fuck. So I stand up and, and slowly, like, start walking away, like, really about to cry because I am really getting sick. And a car pulls up and out gets my dude, my normal drug dealer, the guy. And uh, he sees me and he walks over. He's like, well, yo, what's up? Yo, what you need? And I was like, dude, I was like, that guy just fucking robbed me, bro. I just asked. And he's like, who? And he's like, and I showed him. And he's like, nah, fuck that. And he walks over. Fucking I, I don't hear like exactly what he's saying, but I see his hands moving. And he's giving he's obviously fucking pissed that this dude did this. And. He walks back over and he's like, yo, what, what do you need, man? I, I, what'd you give him? And I told him and he went and got him and made the deal happen. I think he even gave me a little extra. Uh, I just think it's funny that like, cause that's, you know, they're, they're million dollar corners. They, that, that's a businessman. He doesn't want his corner to be known as a corner that gets, that burns people. So he was pissed and that dude, you know, probably got into some shit for doing that. And um, anyway, so we take the bags back to her house and to, to do our normal thing. And uh, I hit her up. We, we, we shoot the coke first and, you know, we get zooted. And I hit her up with a bag of dope. And, and again, she, she won't shoot herself up. Same with the other guy. They, they wanted me to always shoot him up. They never put a needle in their own arm. I always had to do it. So I hit her up and she fucking goes out. She goes down, she turns blue, looks like she's stopped breathing. I start freaking out. Now her brother is in the living room. So I gotta be like, I'm all, I have to be quiet while I'm doing this. Like it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. Like I gotta, I'm giving her mouth to mouth. I throw cold water on her face like twice. I'm like smacking her, shaking her, you know, like I said, giving her mouth to mouth and like, the CPR, um, what the fuck, you know, I'm hitting her chest, I'm doing everything that, you know, I don't even know if any of it was, you know, the right thing, but eventually she came out of it, thank God, um, but it was a fucking insane day, you want to talk about a dopey fucking day, that was a fucking crazy day, and, you know, I don't remember exactly, like, 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 how I felt laying down that night going to bed, but I'm sure I probably was thinking, like, what the fuck are you doing with yourself, because that lady almost just died from drugs that you shot in her, that you almost got killed getting, in fucking Kensington And uh Yeah you know that went on for like another 10 years But that was just one of the crazy stories But anyway I hope this quality Is better Dave Um you know like I said man I'm really proud of you You're doing a great job with the show still I, I, I gotta be honest I'm, I'm Surprised that it's still going I, I really did not think It could go on without Chris, but it is, and it's obviously, it's getting, it's getting stronger and and better, so you know what? That's awesome, man. I'm really happy, Um, and uh, you know, that's it. Tim from Philly, Toodles, love, I love Chris, man. I miss him. Um, He's one of those people that you just, I think of often, and I I just hear his voice, so Toodles for for Chris, and uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. Tim from Philly, also hitting us with the Dopey. Tim's been around Dopey for a long, long time. I remember um, early on, me and Chris, like, we were recording in a hotel room, 
and we got uh, a voicemail from Tim, and uh, it got us just jacked up to tell drug stories, and we just went insane, like like we did drugs. Like it was some crazy uh, rehab story that he had told, like something about like in a parking lot and you know in rehab, and and then all of a sudden me and Chris just poured drug stories out of us and. And uh, I love hearing from Tim. Uh, he's near Kensington, crazy open hair drug market. And uh, and what that story makes me think about is like when I used to go cop and when shit would go wrong and you had a guy and when when shit was going wrong and you, you know, you were sick. So the world was ending and then your guy shows up and you're like saved. It's like even if you had fu- I mean, like I love this story where the guy fucking deals with the 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 thief, the, the robber, whatever you want to call him, the dick. Um, but in my situation, the, the dude would never have done that. In my situation, the dude, the, the guy, my dealer would have known that I'm good for money every fucking day. And he would have just fronted me dope. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, once in a while, those dudes did get burned, but usually they got money every day. I mean, I was good money. I was good to my dealers, uh, for the most part until I ran out of money or went to rehab or, Whatever. Um, that's a good dopey story, you guys. So if you have a, a good dopey story, please send it to me at dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Tim from Philly. Um, thanks, everybody, for contributing to the show. It always means uh, so much to me when you contribute. Send in a fucking email, a voicemail. Just participate in the great thing that is the Dopey Podcast. Today I was actually on some... Uh, Canadian talk show called the Evan Solomon show. So if anyone heard the Evan Solomon show, let me know. It's weird. Anyway, before we go, I want to do a couple iTunes reviews of the week. So first one is from, uh, MPLS millennial with five star review. He says, fascinating voyeuristic view into addiction, mental health and recovery. Although this podcast was started by two drug addicts, there truly is something here for any human being to appreciate, learn from, and enjoy. I really admire the candidness with which Dave speaks and that he allows us to look into his mind, his life, and his heart. I am not an addict, but like most people I know, at least one. And I'm sure there are people in my life that I don't even know who struggle with addiction in some form. This podcast is incredibly entertaining, informative, and inspiring. I look forward to many years of listening to Dopey. Thank you. And then this is from Wusta Dan. And I have to say, I don't think Wusta Dan is famous Wusta. And if you're listening, Wusta, you got to get in touch. We got to talk. But uh, Wusta Dan says, great, but dot, 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 three stars. Now, first of all, I just want to thank Wusta Dan for giving the three stars and not the one star, where Dan says, uh, content is amazing, but Dave's refusal to put in effort to find consistency with the production value holds this podcast from getting to where he wants it to be. Broken promises from an addict. Maybe you test in the mics, stop recording, listen with headphones, and then adjust. Google best sound settings for podcasting. I give this critic with love. Tough love. From an addict to another addict. Stay strong and toodles. Thank you, Wusta Dan. But give and, me a um, fucking break, man. I'm doing my best over here. I'd like to see you guys fucking 
juggle fans and fucking emails and all this shit while you're testing mics and dealing with gear and fucking sound quality. It's like, uh, and I, I, I actually doubt Worcester, Worcester Dan's Massachusetts upbringing as this, this comment sounds particularly Canadian to me, but, um, but to be honest, you know, obviously you know me and, uh, these things cut me like a knife. So this, Sound quality right now is incredibly pristine. So, Worcester Dan, what do you have to say about that? Write an email about how pristine this fucking sound quality is, and um, let's keep it moving. So, before we go, um, lots of stuff is coming up. Crazy, exciting, dopey stuff. Obviously, um, the one-year anniversary of uh, our dear Chris's death, which is uh, coming up very soon. Uh, Chris's birthday, Christmas, which also coincides with the 200th episode of Dopey, which is crazy that we're at episode 200. And what I've mentioned and what I'm thinking about is for the 200th episode, doing a little something we like to call at Dopey as DopeyCon. Now, obviously, since I have a hard time shipping stickers, the idea of setting up an event six weeks out seems daunting to me, especially with all the shit going on. But I want to see, like, who would actually come. So, so please respond to me. Would you go to DopeyCon? Like, would you? And I need honest answers so I can get, like, a good headcount so I know what kind of venue we would get or wouldn't get. Um, but I want to do it. Like, I would love to meet you guys. I would love for you guys to meet each other. I just think it would be cool, and maybe we'd have some special guests and blah, blah, blah. So stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. I want to take a walk around the world I wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad I want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desires, all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by. And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive. Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive. But I want to be good so bad. Want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And my shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadow's getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand I wonder would they pay it any mind Busted city far behind I'll take the high road However far it winds Because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had And 
they start just making me mad, and I want to call my dad, and it's all I ever had, 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 and they start just making me mad, and it's all I ever had, and I want to 